Mark. Joe, how are you? I think you know the answer to that question by now. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is related to our guest, of course, as it always is. Who is your favorite superhero? I was trying to be Batman there at the start. I should have known. Yeah. That's but the- which which Batman were you doing? That's the I question. was trying to do uh, Christian Bale's Batman. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Batman. So that's what that sounds like. Uh, really low. <laughs> so, Mumbling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, my favorite superhero is Spider-Man, without a question. Although I have to say that because some of the Batman movies have been so good, he's elevated way up there. But I still got to prefer Spider-Man because of the humor. Oh, it's oh yeah. I mean, I, Spider-Man is probably my second favorite superhero. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, so what is your the same ballpark here? Oh, Batman for sure. Yeah. I mean, come on. I started with Batman. <laughs> it's all about Batman. <laughs> I should have known. Okay. Yes. So now do we ask uh, the other Mark? I think uh, we do. On the podcast today? Yeah. Mark Laren Mark Young. Mark Laren Young. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. And wow, I'm going to straddle the middle here because my favorite since I was a kid was Batman. But Spider-Man is so freaking close. But yeah, I was obsessed with Batman and then later was obsessed with Spider-Man. I didn't know about Spider-Man when I was like first starting in comics. Yeah, I was the same. Well, the thing is, I used to um, borrow. Let's go with borrow my uncle's <laughs> comics. He only had DCs. So the comics that I knew first were all DC comics. And the idea of Batman and the fact that there was a superhero who did not have powers was what appealed to me. Hmm. Right. The idea Same that, for me. The, the self-made yeah. superhero, right? Well, except his superpower. I think I think it's from one of the Zack Snyder movies. What's your superpower? I'm rich. Hmm. <laughs> that really is one of his superpowers. It really it does explain yeah. a lot. Yeah. 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 But as they've kind of gone back into his origins, you know, and gone in things like Batman Year One, you go, oh, he dedicated his entire life to, you know, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah, so his his superpower is kind of uh, monomania, or just you know focus, or obsession, or. <laughs> well, I mean, it's changed so much over the years. <laughs> yeah, and I've been nerding on Batman on a ridiculous level because of a uh, course I teach at the University of Victoria. So please explain: is it what you teach a course on Batman? No, Batman's kind of the star of the course, or one of them. So a while back, a few years back, right before the pandemic. Uh, I was approached by the chair of the writing department at the University of Victoria, where I was teaching the occasional course. And that professor, she taught a course built around Pixar. And the idea was talking about Mm. storytelling and how worlds are built and how writers do their thing through the universe and through the lens of Pixar. And she said, I hear you're a bit of a nerd. (laughs) "Mm -hmm. Any chance you'd be interested in doing a similar course on like comic book universes to which I proved I was nerd by saying, which one? (laughs) Uh, And I got back, there's a difference. I'm like, yes. Uh, And said, I totally like the comic book guy going, well, I mean, do you want me to do DC or Marvel? You can't, they're not the same thing. Right. (laughs) And um, so what we agreed on was that I would do Marvel one year and DC the next, as it's turned out, the courses are, ridiculously packed. So um, <laughs> Pixar was like the biggest class at UVic. It was 250 students. So they started me with 250 students. Pixar's every term. And now Pixar's every term. 
and I do either DC or Marvel every term. Oh my God. Last year, there were so many students who enrolled for the DC class that I was asked to add an extra DC class two days into the term. <laughs> so, oh, it, it, I, and I think part of it was this was what everybody watched during the pandemic. So everybody was like desperate to talk about the shows they watched. Right. And also the class started during the pandemic. God. Okay. Now I have, I have like 8,000 questions for you. So Oh, go for it. Uh, okay. But first we got to back up because yeah, we always back up. Yeah. Yeah. We always take too long doing this. You got to tell us who you are. Well, we know who you are, but tell our listeners who you are. I'm never sure the answer to this question because people know me from different worlds. So it's like the idea we're talking about comic books and, you know, and books or literature in general is so foreign to me over the last few years because I work in multiple mediums and genres. I've always been pretty fickle about that. So I write books, plays, movies, documentaries, comedy, drama. I, I've never picked a lane in my entire life as a writer. <laughs> and yeah, totally unfaithful between genres and mediums. So about 2015, I started writing the story of a orca, the first ever orca in captivity called Moby Doll. I thought this was going to be a one-off thing that I was doing. As it turned out, I ended up doing a radio documentary, a book, a bunch of articles, and next thing I knew, I was fighting to save the endangered southern resident orcas. <laughs> you became the orca guy. Oh, I totally. Orca guy pretty much was it. I guess that could be my hero name. But I <laughs> basically, I was doing so much writing about orcas that when the Royal BC Museum decided they were going to do an orca exhibit, I was hired to write the orca exhibit. I cannot stress enough that I have no science background whatsoever. Right, hmm. that I received a grade that you guys might be old enough to remember, but they don't give these anymore. I received a grade called a conditional pass in chemistry 11. The <laughs> condition was made very clear to me that I never set foot in another science classroom. <laughs> but so, they never said anything about orcas. <laughs> they never said anything about orcas. Oh, somewhere I'm convinced if my chem 11 teacher is still alive, finding out that I won the national award as best science writer for that uh, book would have killed him. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, we, uh, we cannot be defined by our performance in high school, yeah, right? That's, that's we nice. cannot, definitely not. No. But uh, I've written three kids' books on orcas since then because a publisher out here called Orca, which had very written very few books about whales, approached me and said, would you turn The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, which is my book on Moby Doll, into a kid's book? And I said, that would be a really depressing kid's book. Whale hmm. dies. Can I just do a book where I tell all the cool things I know about orcas? They did that, and that book did quite well. And there were two other books about orcas, like all age ranges. Because again, kind of got the same thing from the publisher going, well, we publish for all age levels. You know, where are you comfortable? I went, I've written animation for the last 10, 15 years, 15, 20 years. So I've written for preschool. I've written for elementary. I've written for, for middle grade. They went, can you do all of those? Sure. Let's find <laughs> out. Do all of those? So, uh, <laughs> so I did three different books that were targeted at three different age levels. So I did a picture book, middle school book, and a baby book, or as I called them, a chewable book. 
because really they're designed so the baby can stick them in their mouth and bathtub. That's yeah. great. Um, Orca flavored. And then I did Orca flavored. And then I did two more on sharks. I'm now doing a book for about octopus. So mostly when I talk, and one of the reasons I was so delighted that you guys didn't know this is that like for the last ten years, when I talk, it's almost always about orcas, endangered species, and how to save the southern resident. And are, and are you cool with that or? Oh, I, I am. Absolutely. It's just really bizarre that I've never been defined by any aspect of my work or what I do. And suddenly very much I am orca guy. And every time I think that I can walk away from that and go, yeah, that was just a book I wrote. That was just like one thing. I find out that I have a platform that allows me to speak on behalf of this endangered species and I can't give up that platform, right? Yeah. Like that, because there are things weirdly, because I'm not a scientist, because I started this podcast called Scanna, uh, where I was covering ocean issues. I discovered much to my surprise, there are things that I can say because I'm not beholden to the government or an institution for the work that I do on this that other people can't say. So I didn't realize this until actually I thought we were going to, actually we we're going to wind down the podcast. I love doing it. I get to interview these amazing people about environmental issues. It's so much fun, but I thought really I'm doing other stuff. And I got a call from the longtime environmental reporter at the Vancouver sun. And he said, I want to talk to you about orcas. And I said, that, that's really sweet, but why me? He said, well, I'm doing my final piece and I really want to talk about how we save them. And I want to ask you some questions. So like, yeah, but I'm not the expert. He went, yes, but you're the only person who will be critical of the Department of Fisheries notions. Mm-hmm. Because he said, you're the only person with any credibility on this subject that I can, that I can speak to right now who will be prepared to say what I kind of need somebody to say which is, yes, it's great that they keep introducing all of these laws, but all the laws they're introducing are imaginary. So both the, see, we've gone down the orca hole, uh, (laughs) the orca rabbit or blowhole, but basically the, like the provincial, the federal and the U.S. governments all keep introducing these really impressive sounding laws to protect the orcas, none of which are enforced nobody's ever find there have been a few rare exceptions as now, but when I did, gave this interview, basically I talked about the fact that nobody was ever fined for violating these laws. People mm. got warnings. They didn't even get slaps on the wrist. They got little warnings saying, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Right. And they go, Oh really? And everybody got quite surprised, shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in the premises. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Deep cut. If you don't know your Casablanca, you should, because these yes. guys did. But mm. yeah, as a result, I've basically been told by a whole bunch of people who to me are the orca experts that I'm not allowed to walk away. So that's how the orca thing is happening. So that's how I'm orca guy. Wow. I guess yeah. I'm well, you can have more than wow. one. You can have another identity though, right? Absolutely. You can be your superhero, but, your orca guy as a superhero, but maybe by day you're a spider-man fan it was really funny years ago over the years i've had several people trying to promote 
various things that I do. Can you please get a pseudonym? <laughs> can you just please, can you please just do this as under this name and this under this? And I'm like, it's too late and they all blur. <laughs> right. Cause I've slid environmental messages into my cartoon since the second one I wrote. Right. Like there is no, yeah, yeah. there, there yeah. really is no line. I admire that. I mean, it's really hard to be a dilettante in this world. And it sounds to me like you've like, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, right? Like the art, the love of art. And it sounds to me like yeah. you're doing it. Like you're, you're loving all these different kinds of arts. These are their art forms and you're, and you're making a go of it. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Early on when I was doing this, I heard the phrase Jack of all trades, master of none. So many times mm -hmm. that I started getting a little annoyed by that. And began just going, yeah, submit me for any awards you want in anything that I do. <laughs> right. So not now I can just thing. go, no, no, I've won awards as a children's book writer. I'm not just dallying. Right. Yeah. I've like, you can go through the areas. I, it's a weird thing to talk about. And the only reason I've ever talked about it is when that phrase comes up. Huh. It's just so, like, so post I'm Mark Laren Young, I'm, it's uh, Jack of all trades, master of eight, nine, 10. That totally works. Oh well, I could you, I could actually use that as a defining pull quote. There you go. You, you may end up getting quoted in future promo for me. Oh, was that Jack of all trades? Jack of all trades. Master of eight, nine, master or ten. Master of ten. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I okay. So look, we're because so uh, I know that we the the pretext for for talking to you today uh, was surprisingly enough not orcas, um, but I'm, I'm happy to to have talked about orcas. But we had talked about. Um, talking about spider-man and uh and yes. and douglas adams so i wonder yeah so to, how do we, how do we um gracefully pivot over there easy enough because it's where i started okay. right like all all three of them are where i started so i can go in order because i am seeing a kurt vonnegut even though you've got most of it hidden i'm seeing kurt vonnegut yeah. in your background work yeah uh, like, he's my he's my uh, literary patronus he's my guy I love Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Okay. And he keeps coming up in this podcast. Yeah. Well, he should, uh, as he should. I teach a course in, um, that I teach at UVic. It's called Creative Being, and it's basically looking at creative ways to express yourself and uh, really an introduction to the fine arts. And I pull so many of his quotes about being creative yep. for that class because it's just so wonderful, so iconic. And when I was... Going back to high school, not defining us. See, this is where it does, right? I remember the girl I had the biggest crush on in my entire life was carrying a copy of Cat's Cradle. And I said, what's that? And I think she said, oh, you, you have to read it. You would love it. And Vonnegut's writing absolutely defined my life. Absolutely, 100%. Because I went, you're allowed to write like that? <laughs> you're allowed to write like people talk? Oh, my God. This is the most amazing thing, like utter revelation, because I thought up until that moment, I thought writing was about showing off the biggest words that you knew. <laughs> and then I read Kurt Vonnegut and went, you can just be interesting. Huh. Wow. And sticking on Vonnegut for a moment, I've, you know, one of those lives we were talking about since I was 16 years old, I've worked as a professional journalist. So that's been a while now. And I was lucky enough to interview Kurt Vonnegut oh, wow. when he was in Vancouver wow. <laughs> and he was doing a TV series 
I could not eat before the interview because I'm like, I've read all of his books. I shouldn't have any questions. Like I, I wrap myself in knots. I've never, <laughs> oh, wow. ever wow. in my life been more terrified about doing an interview. And he was on set for uh, it's called Welcome to Monkey House. It was, it was a TV series, anthology series, where he was the Alfred Hitchcock. Right. Yeah. So he went out and did this little riff going, I'm not a good junior. And I'm, you know, that was not an impersonation because <laughs> you could not do his voice to save my life. But I sat there staring at him going, audience with God. Right. Fortunately, I asked him a question that got his attention really early on, which was he had in the book Palm Sunday, he'd given all of his books a letter grade. Well, he'd had three books since Palm Sunday, three or four books since Palm Sunday. So I said, I'm curious, what are your letter grades for the book since Palm Sunday? And he's like, (laughs) okay. And (laughs) it was like game on. And we actually had a lovely conversation, but it totally rocked my world. If you hadn't asked that question, would you have not got his attention? Would it not have been a good interview? or I don't know. Because the only times I've ever really been tongue-tied in interviews that I can think of, authors and hockey players. Hockey stars, huge Vancouver Canucks fan, and I, I have been tongue tied around. I was tongue tied around Pavel Bure when he was a pie to his Pavel Bure. <laughs> but yeah, Vonnegut. I don't know. I was just so intimidated by the idea that I was interviewing my absolute idol as a writer. I remember, and this actually, I hadn't even realized this when I said it, but these two things tie together perfectly. And where I just came from, I know where I was the night he died. Because I was at the longest overtime game in Canucks history. <laughs> I was at the, I was, I think it was quadruple overtime. It was against the Dallas Stars. One of the Sedins scored. I was writing, doing a lot of journalism at the time. I came home to write about how amazing it was to be at one of the longest hockey games in the history of the sport. Right. I had just been to one of the longest NHL games of all time, and my team had won. And my favorite players, who were not quite a thing yet, had one. I'm like, I've got to write about this. And I get home to the news that Kurt Vonnegut is dead. And I went, yeah, hockey's important. This is what I have to write after. Is I have yeah. to write an obituary. And so I wrote an obituary that night instead. And wow. sent that into a publication called The Taiyi. Oh, that's so, good news. Yeah, my, my two passions. So... That's my memory of Kurt Vonnegut's death. And I just like, yeah, I don't rock my world in every possible I way. I don't cry too much. I'm not a big crier, but there's two celebrity deaths that have made, I burst into tears immediately when I found out he was dead. I mean, he wasn't a young man. I mean, he made jokes about how he was upset that uh, Winston Cigarettes had lied to him about his <laughs> about about his likelihood of getting cancer and dying young because he lived for a fairly long time. But even so, I was just, yeah. It was just sad to think of him oh, not in the him world s- anymore. Oh, so with you and seeing him smoke, like actually, because yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, yeah. I mean, I don't think he was ever without a cigarette, right? Mm. Like just all the footage was, I've seen. The, to me, that's the iconic yeah. image of him is is him with a cigarette. Is yeah. you know. Now I'm I'm wondering what if any celebrity dust would make me cry. Yeah. No, my other one was Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Which again was foolish because yeah. I mean the man was in his eighties. I mean it's not a surprise that he passed away, but again, just the thought of not having him in the world anymore, 
That's that's wow. what the thought was that made me sad. It's like, okay, he's not going to be singing anymore. He's not going to be giving me that low gravelly voice. Yeah. Yeah. But he also he's did dying. the two yeah. most amazing I'm Going to Die albums. Oh, I, I know. Like I know. Wanted, and I actually, the last two albums, the Hanani Hanani. You want it darker? I didn't hear the last one until after he passed away. Yeah. And it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> it's so great. Gene. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if any, like, I mean, you know, every now and then I, I think of Robin Williams or, you know, see him and then I get sad, but I didn't cry. Hmm. Well, you're probably less of a crier than I am. That's my guess, Joe. Yeah, actually, looking back, you're right. I never have cried. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, there you go. You've never cried. He's a robot. Careful, Mark. That's He's right. a robot. Yeah, we'll just Uh-oh. go with that. Don't ask yeah. my wife. Yeah. Um, so sorry, that takes us. Sorry, I we're taking. I'm taking us away from Vronnegut and um, and Spider Man. <laughs> so let's how go back are, to Spider Man. So how, yeah. how are Vonnegut and Spider Man connected? That's that's my question. Because that was the other place that really my writing came from. Is I look and go, mm. you know, Stan Lee, Spider Man, like the, the really classic quippy Spider Man stuff. It's like Batman may have been my hero, but in terms of what I thought writing was, Batman was cool. Spider-Man was fun, right? The the, the Marvel stuff was just fun. And again, yeah. changed the rules around what I thought you could do when you told the story. And also, I look at my grades over the years and I go, oh, you think I know mythology? No, I don't. I've just read lots of Marvel comics. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> I'm like, wow, do a lot of teachers think I've, I'm really well-read? I'm like, no, I am, but not with anything you'd approve of. It's all freaking comic books. Mm, but and stuff we approve of. Yeah. Stuff you guys approve of. But, and actually stuff I think teachers approve of now. Oh, again, the idea that I'm teaching classes built around these worlds blows my mind. Blows my mom's mind. Because it's like, I, I'm sure there were regrets going, I let you collect comics your entire life. I mean, at one point I had 15,000 comics. I had the entire, I had every single appearance in the Justice League of America, all of them, right? Jeez. If they popped up in another comic, I had them. I had ridiculous number of Batman comics. I had pretty much every Spider-Man comic ever written. I've like, I finally got rid of them because I was traveling to, like, it really was just, they're not going to survive the travels. And I had too many friends and family members who were like, we cannot keep storing all of your long boxes of comic books. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but I had the whole, you know, comic collection in bags and boxes thing going on. But it was so clear that my influence early on was comics. And one of the things in terms of my, the TV career that I ended up having, one of the absolute defining moments of that career was I was being interviewed to work on a show called Ace Lightning and the Carnival of Doom, which was a BBC superhero show. It was BBC Kids. CBC Kids picked it up. But it was a wonderful showrunner, a guy named Rick Sigelko, who is the person responsible for bringing Shining Time Station and Thomas the Tank Engine over to North America. Mm. Right? So that was one of his many things. So Rick invented this show that was like this flat-out, I'm going to do a superhero show. It's going to be shot in North America and the UK. And it was the first CG live action hybrid series. So it was Hmm. a a really ambitious series. And 
I was a last second interview for Rick in Toronto. And I had done a little bit of animation writing, some kids writing. And I was, the best way to put it, I was a courtesy interview. Somebody at the broadcaster thought that I was kind of interesting and that I might sort of kind of be somebody he should meet to talk to for this project. But he was meeting the top kids writers in the country. I was not one of those. I was a noob trying to break in. And every other one of these writers came in really prepared. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. I just got this interview. Like it was either that day or the day before I had no prep for it. I'd received no background information. So I said, can you tell me a little bit? So I know what we're talking about. And he starts describing the series and he's describing all of these characters. I'm going, and before I can stop the words from coming out of my mouth and I know I'm doomed when I say them, I say, Oh, you're doing like the first year of Spider-Man. That's green goblin. And that's like, and I just like was rattling off. So this is absolutely first thing. And I'm like, the minute that's considered my mouth, I think he's going to be offended. He went, exactly. <laughs> and he said, and then he says, well, yeah, because I, I developed this series with my next door neighbor, Dennis O'Neill. And my eyes lit up about the same as they would have lit up for Kurt Vonnegut. I went, Denny O'Neill. I like just for really just jaw dropped, eyes wide, like, freaking cartoon face reaction because Denny O'Neill, as you guys may know, wrote all of the Batmans. He was every Batman when I was a kid was a Denny O'Neill Batman. I was the heir of the Denny O'Neill Batman. So to me, he was the man cool. I wasn't in love with Batman. I was in love with Denny O'Neill's Batman. Mm, right. right? Yeah. So I just fanboyed. I'm like, I, I forgot the interview title. Like, How do you know Danny O'Neill? What is it? I was just like, <laughs> lost it. Oh my God. So I actually lose it on him. And I leave the interview thing. Well, I blew that because I like, as far as I was concerned, I hadn't stayed on point at all. Now, my closest friend in the TV world was one of the top kids writers in Canada. Still is. Wonderful writer named Steve Westron. And like, look up his credits. He is all of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we'd go out for interviews together. He'd always like, we'd talk about the jobs we went up for, or I'd talk about the jobs I went up for. And then he'd say, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. He phones me that night and says, I just did a job interview with somebody who could not stop talking about the nerd he'd just met. <laughs> he said, that was you, wasn't it? So he knew I was hired before I did because huh. he called and said, this guy could not shut up about you. you that's really annoying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and like he was both proud of me and kind of annoyed because it was a huge gag. So I wrote a ton of Ace Lightnings and a bunch of the writers in that show were famous comic book writers and artists. Hmm. Right. Like they were people that I absolutely would have fanboyed out on. So you must have been yeah. it then after this gig. I got a lot of work after this gig. Right. I, I worked pretty steadily in kids TV animation and the various superhero shows that would pop up that if you, you know, squint, you're going, Oh, you're ripping off X-Men. Oh, you're ripping. Like <laughs> everybody was ripping off 
somebody, mostly somebody yeah. Marvel was doing, but it's the like, sincerest form of flattery. It is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Titans, which was basically like X-Men, but with kids, these powers come from Greek gods, right? Yeah. Like so I wrote yeah. a ton of those. All of these things came out of getting Ace Lightning. All of them came out of me going, Oh my God, you're doing first season of Spider-Man. So being a fan if somebody told me being a fan would launch my career, I, I never would have believed them. Although it kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. Oh, it really yeah. does. But you wouldn't think there'd be a gig in that. And I was thinking about this the other day. This story I've never shared with uh, any of my classes because it's kind of an odd one. But one of those lives we were talking about, I wrote and directed a feature film called The Green Chain. And one of the stars of The Green Chain was you know the series Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> Trisha yeah. Helfer from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the iconic sexy Cylon from Battlestar Galactica, and we became friends. And I get this. It was a call from Trisha. I can't remember if it was a call or any or a bunch of email exchanges. Going, I'm up for this gig in this movie, and I thought <laughs> you might know something about it. And the movie was Iron Man, and. Like everything was like very NDA and all this, but she said, do you know anything about a particular character? And I'm, I'm being asked all these questions. And finally at the end of the exchange, you're so cool. I can't believe that you know all these things. And I remember thinking, I think this has to be the first time in the history of recorded time. that a supermodel has called someone cool because they know their Iron Man trivia. Right. (laughs) I thought this is not my childhood. We're in a new world now. Right. But I think she's cool. I mean, she's yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, she does cool projects too. And she's Canadian, right? Yeah. And the Green Chain was either the first or second film she'd done, and it was interesting because I knew other people who worked on Battlestar. And I said, we're thinking of approaching Trisha, what she liked. Like, the hardest working actor on set, right? Just worked so hard. And I mean, such a complicated part. And we were supposed to shoot with her for the green chain. And I didn't know this at the time. She said, look, I've got a really rough week for Battlestar this week. Would you be okay bumping back? I didn't find out till quite a while later that was the first week that they'd revealed that she had another identity and revealed the identity where she was being physically assaulted. So that was what she was doing. And she was prepared to come in the night after recording that. Wow. We wouldn't miss a shoot. And I'm like, I was so glad that we didn't do that uh, because she's astonishing in the movie, in the green chain, which is astonishing in everything she does. But in the green chain, she just, here's somebody who did not train in theater who came in and did what was it, 14-minute monologue with no cuts, single-take 14-minute monologue, and just wow. nailed it. So great. Well, you could probably attribute you know, a substantial part of Battlestar Galactica's success to her character and performance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree uh, with that, yeah. Well, I mean, they start the series with her. Yeah, yeah. Like, they actually start the series with, you know, she kicks it off. She's the only person who's actually in the show who kicks it off. Cause the other character who's in that two hander scene does not survive that scene. <laughs> so 
You know, they launch with her and they end with her. You know, however it may have been positioned, whether she was officially the star of that show or not, she was the frame. Yeah. Right? It was her world. Didn't think we were going to nerd out this much, did you? Yeah, yeah, we're we're <laughs> going to to. serious nerddom here, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I thought about that series, but that was such a great series. Wow. So great. Yeah. Now, a little bit of a non sequitur. In our last episode, we spent the entire episode talking about uh, Babylon 5. And uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who obviously started in animation as well. I just have yeah. to ask, have you guys ever crossed paths? Or? Never crossed paths with him at all. I've to- I crossed paths with people who worked with him, right? Like when I was doing, I did a show called Transformers Beast Wars. And my boss had written some episodes of Babylon 5. You're, you wait, know. sorry, who was your boss? A guy named Larry Dottilio. I was going to say Dottilio because he's the only other one other than Straczynski who wrote Babylon 5. Yes. And he was the one who explained how U.S. royalties worked to me and explained that his characters kept dying on Babylon 5 conveniently. And that meant he would not get royalties for the characters. Because in the U.S., like, you know, the, the rules in the U.S. and in Canada are very different in terms of what the authors own. Right. So if you are lucky enough, the writers who really hit the jackpot were the freelance writers or the freelance writer who came up with the Klingon Empire for Mm. Star Trek. That was a freelance script. I don't think they ever had to work again because they get royalties every time those characters appear. Really? Right. If you create a character in Canada, it's like, that's nice of you. Good, good on you. (laughs) Like, so like the series reboot, I wrote the series finale and the, the show before that. Uh, an X-Files parody, which was my first ever gig in TV. And Jillian Anderson guest starred in that episode. That's what launched my TV career. Again, being a nerd. I basically created a bunch of characters who'd been referenced before. They ended up becoming key characters in season three. That's irrelevant. Like I, I never saw anything for that at all. But if you did that in American TV, don't think it's the same in animation, but definitely live TV. You get a piece of that moving forward. So. Gee. Well, I, I named uh, the show Q on CBC Radio, and I feel like I should be getting royalties for that, and I should be a very wealthy man now. You but, named you know, Q? <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. I brag about it every opportunity I get. Uh, okay, I got to sort of change uh, gears here for a second, because I... I sense that um, we're potentially missing an opportunity here. So you are an extremely experienced writer, and I suspect that the the failures were a few and far between, if any. So now I just oh, want to thank you for that. Pump your, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pump your brain for because okay, so Mark and I are writers, and I think we're both uh, quite interested in the craft. And now I got like seven thousand questions about craft I want to ask you. So cool, <laughs> yeah. I suspect because you're teaching at the University of Victoria, craft is something that probably interests you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and the university gig, that was a fluke, right? Like so many gigs, some things are intentional, some things are flukes. TV was a fluke. Playwriting was intentional. Journalism was intentional. Everything that came out of those was like, um, do I want to write a movie? Right? Like I, if I want really, I don't think I want to write TV. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> I, I had an agent who my theater agent went, you want to write TV because one day you want to own a car. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, exactly. And that will not, that will not happen writing theater. Yeah. So she's like, How middle when class do you mean you want to earn it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so into story, 
And I'm sorry that it's such a broad question. What can you tell us about story to write the most effective, compelling story? Oh, wait a minute. I can, I can focus oh. that more. We'll okay. Back yeah. to Spider-Man. Cause you actually said something that I yeah. was going to leap on. And then you went on to something else that got my attention. I'm a shiny paper guy. I like shiny paper. So yeah. you said that there was something about the Spider-Man comics and the way those to- stories were told that influenced you. So yes. what about, what about the storytelling elements of those comic books really showed you something that you didn't think you could do before? Does that help Joe? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Sure. What I feel like Marvel nailed was weirdly what, say, the Batman series joked about was the cliffhangers, right? Tune in next week, same bat time, same bat channel. But Marvel nailed those. You always wanted to read the next issue. Marvel just always kept your attention. And teaching the class in Marvel and DC, I've done deep dives into Stan Lee. And I've interviewed a whole bunch of people who've worked with him now. And what kept coming up was he said, the ultimate Spider-Man story is Spider-Man is out there. He's got to save all of New York from this villain, but he's got the medicine Aunt May needs to survive. That there's all, there are always two things going on. There's always that terror where he's never going to be able to be great at being Spider-Man and Peter Parker at the same time. He's never going to be able to save Aunt May and New York at the same time. He always manages to, but that's the tension. So, but for me, I mean, man, it's, there's a sense of fun. Like for me, I think what what made Marvel special, what made the Spider-Man stories and so many of the Marvel stories special. And I think the reason that Spider-Man now, people are so into Miles Morales, as opposed Mm. to the classic Peter Parker, the sense of joy. Right. Yeah. Especially the DC movies just forget exist for the most part. Right. <laughs> the, isn't this cool? I can swing on a web. Right. Yeah, isn't yeah. this amazing? And what the Marvel movies do at their best is they capture the amazing. They capture the, isn't this cool of it all. They capture the wow of it all. But like for writing, I'm just like, just freaking right. Like just put words down. There's, there's an essay. I don't even, I don't, are there any words I'm not allowed to say on the show? Wonderful writer Anne Lamont has this uh, no. essay <laughs> no. called uh, shitty first drafts that is brilliant, which basically says, get it down on the page, then figure it out. Yeah. Right. And I know that when I was a student writer, it never occurred to me how much people rewrote. Right. That was a total shock to me. One of the things I tell students when I talk about TV and film, no one who's ever paid me has ever seen my first draft, right? There, it's That's not quite true because I've got one producer I trust well enough who's also put me on some impossible and ridiculous deadlines where I haven't had a choice because in order to make the deadline, I don't have time to polish. But if somebody's paying me, they're not generally seeing a first draft. They're seeing a draft that I've run by, maybe my friend Steve Western, that I've run by friends, that I've run by people I trust. People I trust to tell me when things don't work. Yeah, that's great. I, I don't need anybody to tell me it works, right? If you're just going to tell me this is great, you know, if it actually is great, that's awesome. But if you're never prepared to tell me when it's not working, you're not a helpful reader. You're, <laughs> you're a helpful reader at the end of it all when it's yeah. published. But, yeah. you know, before that, you need the reader who's going to say, 
really, you can't, yeah, I don't get this. I'm lost here. You know, this bored me, whatever. You need those readers. Like you need the friends who are prepared to tell you the, you know, tell you when something doesn't work. That's a great mm. lesson to learn. I, I think that was for me the hardest lesson to learn. I wish I'd learned it earlier, but yeah, just like listening to feedback and going, and quite often what people will happen, people will have specific things that they say, oh, well, try this. And it's like, okay, it's not the specific solution that matters, but the identification of the problem that matters, especially yes. if you get more than one reader get, identifying the same thing, like the notes kind of oh, the same. It's you like, just hit on the thing that, yeah. okay, there's like one thing that I try and remember to say in every class. I haven't said this to, my, to any of my students yet this term. If one person, if you have a bunch of readers and only one person, flag something. I don't care if that person is your prof or the person paying your bills or whatever. And only one person has an issue. Chances are it's their issue. Yeah. <laughs> now, if it's your prof or your producer, or whatever, you may have to listen to that, but it's their issue. It's likely not a problem with writing. If two people eh, listen to what they're saying, if three people, you've got an issue, listen to their solutions and then find your own because they don't know what isn't on the page. So yeah. all they can respond to is what is on that page. And you know all of the 8 million other ideas you threw away. So their solution is almost never going to be the best. But they found a problem. So listen to what the problem is. Yeah. Don't listen to what their solutions are. Right? Go, yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. Write them down. Be polite. But chances are you tossed a better solution when you were overthinking this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, off the top, yeah. Right? Things I wish I'd known 20 years earlier. That really would have been so much easier. Use, <laughs> yeah. <you know>? yeah. <laughs> okay. So here's, yes. here's another question. Uh, back to the superhero thing. So we, <laughs> we, we talked about uh, uh, Spider-Man and Batman being our favorite superheroes. And I think like, if you ask like a large number of people, those are the two superheroes that people will mention, mm -hmm. you know, how come, you don't hear people. Now I do have a friend who uh, she's a huge fan of wonder woman, but she's the oh. only one. Oh yeah. 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 But how come people, nobody says like the other obscure superheroes. It's really interesting. Cause I kick off my Marvel and DC classes asking who their favorite heroes are. Cause I keep expecting that I'll hear different characters. Right. And I get the odd one, the DC class just launched. And without a doubt, it was Batman and Spider-Man, but so much love for Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, part of that is also just the phenomenal quality of the Spider-Verse movies. Yeah, they're really... Which they're are really, just yeah. flat-out brilliant movies. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, redefining what animation looks like. Yeah. Uh, you can look at other animated films. Look at Mitchell's and the Machines. That does not exist without Spider-Verse, right? They are yeah. playing at a different level now with what they're doing there. But also, again, Miles Morales is like rediscovering the joy of Spider-Man. Like so much fun. But like it was all, I was still getting the winners. Just so you know you're on track. I was like, who are your favorite superheroes? Batman, Wonder Woman, and a lot of love for, um, a lot of love for Nightwing now. But Nightwing also took over from Batman at various times. Right. There's something about that superhero without powers that I think really, really resonates with people in the Marvel class. I get a lot of love for Iron Man, but I think that's more love for Robert Downey Jr. Right? Yeah, he's his, so the charm that he brings to the role. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Like seriously, I, every time I do the DC class, I'm like, 
as cool as Superman is in, in terms of the, the pop culture history, if Wonder Woman were part of the Batman family, I could just turn the DC class into a Batman class because mm. it's yeah. got everything. One of the things they do in that class is I do a weekly journal where I ask questions to get a sense of what's sticking with them. And one of the things that the first class that I ever like rewrote because of a journal, I was getting ready to give a lecture on Batman and I'd shown them the Adam West Batman. And they were so baffled by the idea that Batman could be goofy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got all of these basically several hundred journals just going, what were they on in the sixties? Like, why did they think this was Batman? And I'm going, and I realized that the, the actual answer to that was censorship, but the actual answer to that was that the various levels of censorship had defined Batman and superheroes and pop culture over the years. So suddenly I was doing a lecture on the comics code, the Hayes code, seduction, the innocent, all of these different things. I mean, that's how Batman became goofy. Batman became goofy in response to censors. And that's how comics became goofy. And then Marvel came out of that and went, okay, here's our solution. But now I wanted to ask you about a TV series that I really enjoyed recently that I know you have some connection with, not the current version, but a previous version, Moon Knight. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're really going to let me nerd out, aren't you? (laughs) Um, So this, again, is one of those cases where being a nerd my entire life scrubbing one of my coolest gigs ever. So I had written for a series called the collector where I actually wrote an episode starring Trisha Helfer. This is how I originally kind of got to meet her and see her work. And I went, I went on, went on set, met her and I'd written this episode where she was a DJ with multiple personalities. And I don't know if we knew this before I don't know if this predated her playing the different personalities Mm. on Battlestar. I think it may have, but basically it was about this guy who collected souls for the devil, right? Your devil's bargains never go well. And uh, really fun show. Sharon was was, uh, a guy named John Cooksey who taught me so much about TV. And John reached out to me when I was working on a different series and said, look, I've just been asked to adapt a Marvel comic series for television. Have you ever heard of this character called Moon Knight? And I respond to him and said, I have this. This was one of the other characters. Cause when I was into a character, I was really into a character. I said, I have every single appearance of Moon Knight starting with his backup appearances in the rampaging Hulk magazine. What do you want to know? <laughs> I'd read all of them and I'd actually been obsessed with Moon Knight because Moon Knight felt like what I thought Batman should be. And I didn't realize that what had happened was DC creators basically came over to Marvel and Moon Knight was all the stories they weren't allowed to tell for Batman. Oh. <laughs> these, all these really grim and gritty, realistic, like for all the fact that, you know, by comic book standards, realistic stories of like domestic violence and stuff like that in Moon Knight. So there were a couple things going on was Moon Knight was the first like Jewish superhero that I was aware of. So I thought that was freaking cool. But Moon Knight was also 
Batman. Like Moon, Moon Knight was what I thought Batman should be, mm-hmm. right? He was a super, super gritty character in a way that Batman at the time wasn't quite where they went with Moon Knight. So love that character. Love him so much. And I get the call from John and what had happened was it's, it's a convoluted story. I, I, uh, written but you can check it out on like my sub stack or whatever i think i finally shared it there but basically there was a blade tv series and originally the producers in canada had the rights to blade something went sideways there and another place got blades they went what would be the next best follow-up and the answer was midnight so we basically were working on a series that to my mind was essentially what Arrow later did, right? Like there were so many similarities Hmm. because we were also working out of Vancouver and Arrow was working out of Vancouver and John knew what everybody was capable of. So John was like, okay, he's going to do parkour. Cause he's like, I know which stuntman can do which tricks (laughs) basically. He's like, I know which stuntman can do this. I know which, which person can do this, which is I'm sure. Part of what happened on Arrow, they're like, oh, we've got this guy who can do this and this and this. So we were we worked out a Moon Knight TV series. I got to write an episode of it. I was asked, okay, you're the nerd. Who do you want to write? I said, Moon Knight's best villain is Stained Glass Scarlet, also like the only female villain in the entire run. So I wrote a Stained Glass Scarlet episode of Moon Knight. But also John's like, how do we ground this in our reality? And this is going back to why I can't really do the pseudonym thing because all my passions tend to come into play whatever I do. They don't hide. So John, like me, has a very environmental bent. He made a movie called How to Boil a Frog, which is all about climate change. I'd helped him with that movie. So we decided that Bushman, who's Moon Knight's like arch nemesis in the comics, would own an oil company. <laughs> so we That's were good. basically having Moon Knight fight an evil oil exec (laughs) right so we had all of these environmental themes hidden on the surface but like playing them down as much as we could because we thought they're never going to get by any broadcaster if we're just flat out saying we're going to get past fossil fuels but that's what we were doing so we wrote there were five scripts written and then my understanding of what went sideways was they couldn't lock a U.S. broadcaster. They had sales around the world, but they needed a U.S. broadcaster to, to close funding. And mm. because Blade wasn't doing as well as they thought it would do, they couldn't close funding with Network during Blade. That, that's like above my pay grade. How and yeah, why yeah. things yeah. don't happen, yeah. I've yeah. never been at that pay grade. But seeing notes on an episode I'd written on Marvel comic letterhead <laughs> that's about as cool as it gets that's right awesome. like that was better than awards that was kind of lifelong fantasy day. oh absolutely better than awards yeah yeah my god okay we could talk to you for like another two hours we're gonna have to have you back man there's no i want my i want to ask you a question about kill bill and your take on bill's take on superman you remember that scene where he's oh wow. he's describing superman he's like superman didn't become Superman. He was born Superman. He becomes Clark Kent. And Clark Kent is his critique of the human race. It's, he's cowardly and weak. And 
I don't think it's right. I don't think that's what Clark Kent is. But it's an interesting but, take. But it's yeah. what I've heard Phil's a whole bunch is. of theories of that. Yeah. That that's a theory that I've heard a bit, which is yeah. that Clark Kent is him mocking. You know, like him basically going, Yeah, humans are weaklings, let's let's mock them. And it totally would scan that Bill would think that. Yeah. I think it was just the opposite. You get a superhero yeah. created by Jewish immigrants who want to fit into, you know, mainstream society who go, Okay, everybody sees us as Clark Kent. But we are really super and awesome. <laughs> yeah. If only they knew the real us. The real us is super and awesome. And if you look like the early Supermans, and part of what caught on, you have it's the ultimate immigrant success story, right? That's true. You come yeah. to America, you be you become yeah. the ultimate American. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, you know what? That's not Superman's heart to mock humanity through Clark Kent. That is not. No, I heart. just yeah, I, I just I just think it's that every time I see that scene, I, I love that movie. So every time those movies, every time I watch it, I go, "He's not right. That's not what Clark. That's not what Superman is doing with Clark Kent." To me, I think you know, Christopher Reeve got the heart of Superman yeah. those first two movies. Yeah. I think he right? did. Like yeah. that's that really feels you know, when I've when I've read interviews or talked to uh, people who've worked on Superman who truly love the character, that's that's where they go to. Yeah. Right. That is his real superpower is almost the his faith in humanity. Yeah. His faith that he is helping helping on people who deserve help. Yeah. Okay, you know what? And we're going to have to end it there. We'll have to have you back, Mark. Like, this was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun nerding out with you. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. It's been great. Mark Laren Young, thank you very much for being on our podcast, Recreative. Thank you so much for doing this. Produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web designed by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.